Hello and welcome to Young, British and Black, the Naked Politics podcast exploring what it means to be young and black in Britain today. Often young black people's experiences and views are presented as one dimensional or a monolithic experience. Through conversations with ordinary young black British people, we're hoping to paint a picture of the diversity of black British youth today. We'll be discussing the struggles and hurdles facing black youth and also highlighting the incredible joys of being young, British and black. Today, I'm really happy to say that I'm joined by Luther, who is 21 years old. Hey, Luther, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. So let's get straight into it um, and have a chat about what it was like for you growing up. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the UK? And what was that like for you as as an experience? Uh, I was born and raised in Cheltenham Town in uh, Gloucestershire. So, yeah, I was born and raised in England. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> the southwest. So yeah, that all all I knew till I was eighteen and went to uni was Cheltenham, small town, uh, not very multicultural. You know, that's that was my environment that I came accustomed to. But it it it, it was what I was used to. So I didn't really know how different it was till I expanded and went out other places and experienced other things. But at an early age to me I normally didn't realize anything different for what it was as I grew older my eyes opened up more and I kind of did notice like that Cheltenham is very different when you compare it to like the bigger cities like a Birmingham that's right next to us or Bristol Manchester London and I had family living in all those places so when we visit them you would see just how different you see a lot more people that look like you mm. which was very interesting to be started as a kid but (laughs) it's good to experience it yeah I mean so because I've got a similar experience to that as well like how bad are we talking like are we talking like only black person in the village only black family in the village where there's was there like a cluster or a community of black people but just not many of you or what was it like how bad was it (laughs) I think you know the thing is so we had a very we have a very strong Kenyan community in Cheltenham because they, there was um you know twin towns so with the city in Kenya Kasumi there was a twin twinned with Cheltenham so the like my parents came because they were offered scholarships to study in the University of Gloucestershire and many others my aunties and all of those were offered and many other people came and then obviously they were told about this and then as they came they were introduced to my parents and like those are already there and they helped them settle and that's how a big community kind of grew but those were adults there weren't many kids in school I was with um my older brother and my cousin and my other cousin who's my age so my older brother my one cousin are the same age and my uh, other cousin and me are the same age so we we were kind of in like the same year groups throughout primary school throughout secondary school and then obviously my brother and my older cousin left that was when I was about year eight and then in year nine early year nine my cousin then and his sister and the auntie moved to Peterborough and from then onwards I was the only black kid in my year group till sixth form. till sixth form till sixth form that's when two others from different schools came to me so mm-hmm. till sixth form I was by myself that is it with Cheltenham there are a lot of there are a lot of foreigners but it's like there's not many black sure yeah so that you'll have a lot of um eastern europeans a lot of um the polish central european and 
those um, and that, but you don't have many of the black community coming to the show. And so when I was growing up, it was you. I mean, I see it in my cousins and my nephews. Like there are a lot. Of, there is a lack of um, a lack of uh, people to look up to that look like you. Teachers can't relate to you, you know, people around your peers don't know what you're like because you're the only one there that's like you. Doesn't that you you have a lack of relatability and you almost are bound to have identity identity crisis as well, Mm. especially at a young age, looking for people like you and there's none around you. So you said, um, just to go back just a little bit, so you said you've got Kenyan heritage. Yes. Um, so were your were your parents first generation immigrants then? Yes, yes, yes. They my dad came in ninety one, year after my sister was born. My mom came in ninety two, two years old. Okay, so then you have a an older sibling who was actually born in Kenya. Yes, my oldest sibling was born in Kenya, and she didn't come till she was sixteen. Oh wow! So that's a really different <laughs> so experience. Yeah, she stayed in Kenya till she was 16 because I think there was some troubles getting like the visa for her to be able to come here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, no, in fact, Elaine came when she was 17, yeah. So she came in 2007 and yeah, we had fought multiple times. She was like, the plan was actually the first time I went to Kenya, which was the first time I ever saw my sister, was um, 2007. So she was meant to come back with us, but she couldn't. So she didn't actually come till December 2007, but went to Kenya in April. And, and yeah, it was just because my parents were focusing on their, their plan was never to stay in England. Their plan was to study and go back home. And they ended up building a family here. They got married, then had my brother, then had me. And it never came back to coming back to Kenya, just ended up staying here. Yeah. So is that, do you feel like there's a bit of a, a cultural difference or chasm because you're obviously your, your eldest sibling has grown up like basically till she's an adult in Kenya and then you're like you're black British do you feel like there's a difference is there ever like a culture clash or, or difference or, or difference of views or has she just become very English now that she's been here like <laughs> I think the thing is with Elaine she was always the uh, she says she was always the like kind of westernized girl when she was in Kenya anyway Okay. So like she was watching WWE, she was doing all this stuff, watching Hannah Montana. So when she came, she literally just fit right into me. We would spend every single, every, and I mean literally every night after dinner, me and her would go to her room and just watch Friends from, and we watched it till we finished the entire series. WWE, <laughs> Disney Channel, whatever it was, like it, it she, I feel like she did kind of just slot right in. She didn't, um, she might have experienced, she, she might be able to tell you a completely different story, but from my side view, it didn't seem like she struggled at all. She found her friends, she found her group of friends and she found everything. Yeah, it seemed like she came quite quickly and got used to it. That's so, that's so interesting to me, the way like people who don't necessarily live in the West, because I, I know people like that as well. My dad was a bit like that. Like my dad grew up, like uh, he's from Congo. Yeah. the Democratic Republic of the Congo um, and he like grew up like and learned English with like an American accent and like he was like really westernized and do you know what I'm saying and so, but he's from like, know, <laughs> so it's, it's so interesting how that, how that works isn't it but that's that's nice to know that she could come here and 
um, just sort of like slot in and, and you guys just sort of got each other. Um, so going back to school a little bit, because we touched a little bit on um, you talking about school, like, do you feel like, what was school like for you then? You've talked about this idea of not really feeling represented, like you didn't see yourself in um, the teachers, the people teaching you. I'm guessing maybe you didn't see yourself much in the curriculum either um, <laughs> that you were being taught. Um, you know, what, what, was, what was school like for you? I mean, did you, did you feel typecast ever? Did you feel like you faced hurdles that perhaps your peers who were white didn't? Um, what, what was your experience like? Um, I, 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 I did struggle a bit in school and I think the, the more I grow older, the more me and my friends even have these conversations of like, we took so much stuff in school that we shouldn't have. <laughs> and I think that, and it's like, when you're young, you don't realise it. But for example, I, I, I went to school, biggest school in the Cotswolds, which is quite a large area of England. So this is the biggest school in the Cotswolds, most students. And um, there was one black teacher, his name was Mr. Chukumba, I think he was from Zimbabwe. He passed away from cancer when I was in like year seven. So I never had him, he never taught me. Mm. And then from then on, there was not a single minority teacher till I got into, I know there was one art um, teacher. She was, I think Miss She was Chinese, if I'm not mistaken. And then once she left, because she got pregnant and just didn't come back, there wasn't a there was another one when I got to sixth form. So we didn't really have many minority um teachers in the first place. So when it came to issues like me being racially abused, because unfortunately it did happen a lot of times in school, mm. sometimes as a kid who kind of wasn't good at controlling his emotions, I would get angry and I would retaliate. And then the teachers who can't empathize with how I'm feeling because of what's happened would give me detentions and not give other people. Mm. So I'm getting the detentions for retaliating, but they don't. Or for example, in another way, um, I, one time, some kid actually did get suspended. And then the rest of the days, all the other guys were like, oh, why did you get him suspended? All the other students, why, why, why? He's done nothing wrong, da, 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 da. All that type of stuff. So it was kind of hard because like I said, there's no one there that can relate to the feeling because they don't understand. So there's no empathy there. You kind of are alone. There's no sympathy for you. Like no one can get you much because you are literally alone. You're the only one that understands that feeling. Yeah. So in that terms, it was tough. And that leads to you kind of just making excuses for people. You start taking stuff you shouldn't take because it's like, oh, I, you start trying to fit in your kid. You start trying to fit in. You just allow stuff. You laugh it off, shrug it off. And it causes a lot of issues for people like us when they're kids because kids don't know how to properly deal with emotions. You don't. Some are better than others, but you don't fully know properly until you're more grown up. So I feel like that was a big struggle for me. Yeah. And I feel like, um, obviously this might not be your experience, but I feel like particularly for um, black men um, or people who are who are, are seen as, 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 as men or, or masculine, um, you know, it's, there is this, you're hyper-masculinized, right? Like very easily. So there's that expectation always of you 
to be that angry threatening person um and then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy isn't it where you become what people have told you you're gonna turn out to be do you know what I mean it's like a fate that you you can't really escape sometimes um I mean yeah I mean it's hard as well because you think about what the long-term emotional impact is on you being in an environment like that where I guess you um you almost have to put on a lot of armor don't you to kind of like deal with deal with the shit and and deal with the deal with the, the the crap that gets loaded onto you um and yeah it's it's tough I I can definitely um definitely empathize a lot with that obviously you've made it out of school congratulations um and you so you're at university now um what are you studying if you don't mind me asking so I did a bachelor's in journalism but I'm back to do a um master's in media media and communications I decided to do a master's because I was offered a job freelance, doing freelance um, broadcast assistance in for BBC Radio Lincolnshire. Oh, awesome. So that, I was like, my mum kind of didn't give me the choice. She was like, if you're going there, you're, you're doing a master's, you're doing it. I was like, no, you know, you're doing it. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> get, get some doing a master's then. <laughs> so I was good at that. actually leads me nicely to my next question, which is like, yeah, I, I don't know if this is always the experience. It's, it's, it varies culturally, of course, doesn't it, across different Black cultures, but was there ever any expectation from you family-wise in terms of, like, what you were going to study? Was it understood that you definitely were going to go to university? Um, you know, were there quite sort of big expectations on you or rigid expectations, you would say, from your, your family and your culture about what, what you should do? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It's, it's, it kind of stems with um, my sister is kind of a genius. <laughs> she, she, is she this the oldest us, one that we were talking about before? Yeah, yeah. I've got an older sister, my brother, and then me. So she's really, really smart. She's um, she's doing her master's as well today. She's, um, I think it's in human biology. Sorry, Elaine, if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> she did her bachelor's and then I think she's doing a master's as well. But uh, yeah, so she kind of put the stakes really high. And I'd like to say I'm someone that's quite academically smart. So mm-hmm. my parents always had that um, kind of. You're going like it, it was never like I when I used to want to be do mechanical engineering. And I wanted to work with cars and therefore the kind of best route at that point when I finished my GCSEs may have been to do like a apprenticeship. I was trying to do a Jaguar Lander apprenticeship, but like it wasn't, no, you, you're going to Elims. Like mm-hmm. you're going to Elims. That wasn't, it wasn't a no, maybe. It's not a negotiable thing. You are going to A-levels, yeah. <laughs> Luckily I did go to A-levels and I decided to do the journalism route which has actually come out really well for me mm. but <laughs> yeah that was there but to be fair they've never had that um that saying you're gonna do this career they've always been very supportive of whatever I want to do do it when I wanted to be a footballer my dad would travel left right and center across the country to when I was a kid to take me to football matches when I mean, I wanted to be an F1 driver at a point, Jesus. (laughs) You wanted to be everything. (laughs) (laughs) But so there was that point. And 
I had every single thing. I used to I used to only drive on the F1 game with the actual steering wheel and pedals because my dad bought it because I wanted to be an F1 driver. And <laughs> so they've never they've never told me like, nah, that career. The only one rule they had is like they say, you're my child, you're meant to one up me. Don't go into the like kind of area that we went in, go better, aim for better than what we did. That's the one, like, kind of restriction they told me. And they were both, like, managers of, like, my dad was at a point, regional manager of, like, he was in charge of, like, 40-odd pizza expresses. Their kitchens. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he was, like, the head chef for all of them. And then he decided to, the only way forward he was given was, um, was to become assistant manager of the, chef, the, the restaurant in Cheltenham, which again, we've had conversations with uh, with my parents. They all say like, if they were weren't black, they do reckon they would have progressed higher and higher. But they were set a cap. But um, my mom always said, as a kid, she wanted one of her children to be a journalist, and it just <laughs> maybe like it just installed in my brain, and I didn't do it by accident. <laughs> but like somehow I found my way here. But no, nah, they've just always been supportive. Whatever I want to do, they will back it, and they will help me that way just as long as I am working out that family yeah that's good I get as long as you'll get you're going upwards I guess um because sometimes like the whole I mean there's a whole kind of culture around black excellence isn't there which obviously like I know why we have words like black excellence but sometimes it um it's also a lot of pressure sometimes personally as well isn't it um and I think a lot of black immigrant parents like they have their own version of, of black excellence um and I can remember as a kid like the scariest thing for me was like doing badly at school and feeling like really ashamed like not even getting punished but just the feeling of shame yeah. oh my yeah. god I've got like a bad even one bad GCC out I'd have felt bad about it um, I, I lied to my parents about my AS grades completely lied. <laughs> yeah because I did that badly my oh. AS went really bad luckily <laughs> I was like the, I was the year that I was transitioning. So it was like only one of my ASs followed through into my A-levels. And that was the one I did the best in. Oh. The rest of them were just pretty much mock papers. So I was like to them, yeah, yeah, I did this, this, and this, and this. And then when we were moving house, they went through them and they told me. <laughs> and they found out that I lied. But I was already a, I was already a third year uni student by that point. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's all right then. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and how does it feel as well? One other thing I wanted to ask you in relation to your cultural background was how do you feel in touch with your Kenyan side? Because there's of, there's often this thing of like, okay, I'm black and I, I've grown up in Britain, like that's your kind of lived cultural mm -hmm. experience. But then I've also got these other pieces of me in, you know, another country or countries. Um, how do you how do you kind of link all that together? Do you feel like there's ever a conflict there? Because obviously Kenya as well, like that's got a, a very direct colonial link, of course, as well to Britain. And there's a there's a very sad history, of course, of some of the horrific things that, that British governments did in, in, in Kenya as well. I mean, how, do, do you ever have issues marrying all those bits of your identity together or does it just work? How, how do you feel about that? It's a bit um, of a question. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to think because I I'm trying to think of how to word it because I um 
I think with me, my the everyone the like I said earlier, there's a strong Kenyan community, and they when we were growing up, they used to have a lot of like events where they'll do like fashion shows, and they'll do like like they'll just buy out halls and they'll like just play music. So we were surrounded by it, even though like I know we're from Kenya, like they'll play like Lingala, even though Lingala is more central African and stuff, but like we would still listen to that music. And that is like us growing up. And I, even me and my cousins now are listening to that music that our parents are growing up listening to like coffee and people like that. Yeah, that's so, like stuff my dad listens to as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now we're growing up kind of like, we listen to it almost ironically, but now it's like nice. We kind of enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me at least i i'm really into music and i've started um kind of getting into that eastern african music because there is a lot it's kind of modernized now and there's a lot more music that so someone like me can listen to and enjoy mm. and i go through phases like where i will be in the mood to just feel that way and eat ugali and skumawiki or something like that and like just want to have that like <laughs> it's more when I'm home because like my mom can make the stuff for me and I can't really make the stuff myself <laughs> but <laughs> when like but do do the do I struggle to mix the two differences of how um I wouldn't say I struggle but I say it's different they're different sides to me and they all come together to make me who I am Mm. there's parts of my mentality that are because of my parents being Kenyan and that's how they were raised that's how my family was raised that's how I was raised and there's parts of me that are my opinions because I was raised in Cheltenham surrounded by English people and they come together to make kind of the ways I act the things I eat the things I do why I like certain things and I never have conflict between the two me is me and they come together to make the whole so I feel like that's probably why I don't think I struggle with them I, I do think sometimes like my Kenyan side is repressed to a lot of my other compared to a lot of my other family members mm. like like my old my sister it's really weird like so you know how I said my brother has the cousin the same age as him and I have the same age mm. my sister also has a cousin that two cousins the same age as her uh, okay. they all were raised in Kenya and moved once like a couple of years after their parents had moved they, so they all have the like very Kenyan like they're more Kenyan than all of us then there's um my brother and um his my, my cousin Sheila Sheila and my brother both can speak Swahili fluently, but they were born and raised in England. And they were the middle children. They were like, but at that point, they were the middle children, but their older siblings were in Africa. So they were like the only children. They were born, taught, and learned Swahili. Yeah. And then me and Eli, my cousin, same age as me, we come, we're probably, other than our younger cousin that's come as well after us where the like almost it, as you go down it becomes the Kenyan aspect as you can see decreases decreases, decreases. Mm. so yeah but the A is still in us at the end of the day yeah brilliant no I think that's so it's so interesting I think everyone kind of juggles different black people I think juggle with that the, those different aspects of their identity 
differently, don't they? Um, so yeah, that's that's really interesting. But I'm I'm glad to know that you feel like your identity makes sense to you, or if you feel at ease with it as well. That's that's very nice, and you should feel like you know at the end of the day, like you're you're British, you're here. Um, you know, you you should feel comfortable no matter what other people might tell us and there's plenty of people who might tell us we're not British <laughs> um but we of course have every right to uh to, to, to feel comfortable in, in in this culture as well so I'm glad that you do um moving the conversation just a little bit then um more towards you know thinking about Black Lives Matter some of the recent you know politics racial politics that we've, we've seen I guess over the last sort of year year and a half. I mean, tell me a bit about, last year was quite a momentous summer um, for black people in the West, probably not in like a great way. Uh, <laughs> like in, in the aftermath, it's in the aftermath of, of George Floyd, the death of George Floyd. Um, obviously we get this then very big discourse or conversation about anti-black racism um, that at least in my memory, I don't think we've ever had before. Um, yeah. How did you feel at the time? Like, what were your feelings in, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, and did did it impact you? And and how did you feel about, I suppose, that the response from you know people in the mainstream, from white people, maybe white peers, friends of yours? I mean, how did you feel? I really struggled at the start. Um, I feel like I was just scrolling through Twitter. I remember this really, really, really vividly, and. Um, I, I saw it kind of before it was being reported, like before it became a big thing on Twitter. And um, the actual video of George Floyd, like before, like I feel like I saw it almost straight away. You know, when you're on Twitter mm. and you just, just re you refresh and like you see like 20 seconds in something's posted. Probably wasn't, that, it was probably like two, three minutes in, but like I, I saw the video and I was watching it. And then for like the next like, hour I kept just randomly starting to cry mm. and I couldn't stop I was literally like weeping like someone like my family member must have. it was it was something that and I still don't quite know what element of the video made because I'd seen previous videos of police killing um, um, African-Americans in America and none of them had kind of made me feel the way that video made me feel and I was literally I was playing an Xbox game and I was sat on my chair and I kept having to pause it because I just kept just crying just out of nowhere mm. and it was it was a weird emotion but then I moved back to um, Lincoln because I had to do some stuff for radio and uh, I one day I was sat in my room and I was just so many thoughts were going on in my head I just couldn't get rest I had deleted social medias because every time and it was I it was a completely wrong decision but I just needed mental rest away from the whole yeah thing because for, uh, my head was just racing 24 7 I couldn't I couldn't handle it mm. so in order to do that, I deleted Instagram, I deleted Twitter, I deleted Facebook. I just, only one I kept was Snapchat. And then I was literally just sat in my room and I, I thought to myself, no, nah, this is wrong. Like doing this, saying it's like running away from me is the wrong thing to do. So I 
set my camera up like on my radiator and for like the next half an hour I just recorded my thoughts on everything and then I had like a podcast with my friend and we stopped um we had stopped at the time but we had a youtube channel where we would post the visual versions of the podcast so we had an instagram page for that and it got to a point in the video where i just started crying when i was recording so at that point i just said no nah, screw this i'm just going to restart from now on and then ended up doing like a 10 minute video and posted that on the uh, instagram mm. And it got word to, I think it was um, Radio Gloucestershire. And I spoke to Radio Lincolnshire about it. And I spoke to a lot of others. Mm. And it was just me talking about like, okay, um, the issues of um, like, because I used to want to be a journalist covering the NBA. I wanted to live in America. One of my goals was always just to live in America. And I was so... I still am so put off America just because of that day. I can't imagine myself going there. To me, America is a hellhole now. Yeah. I can't, it's completely out of the option for me. But that whole thing just, it, it triggered me really differently. And since that day, I've kind of found myself being more, I've had so many conversations like this, for example, BBC radio, like the BBC radio that talk to me quite often, have called me more times to talk about stuff like this. I made a documentary based on the black lives in Lincoln because Lincoln, again, like Cheltenham is a very, very un, it, there's a lack of diversity, especially in the black population. Mm. There's so little black people here, it's crazy. So I, and the issue, the difference between there and Cheltenham is here, there's so much blatant racism. Yeah. So I ended up doing a documentary based on that and I spoke, spoke to more platforms about the documentary. And my goal, I just gave myself this goal of trying to create more awareness about it. Because I, I, I knew, okay, I'm going to make a documentary. It was for a uni, um, it was for a university uh, project, but the university project could only be 15 minutes. I made a separate one, 33 minutes, I think it is. So, yeah, I knew I'm not going to get millions of views, but as long as I could get that thousand, I think I got like 1,200 views, that was enough because that's 1,200 people that would at least see it and see how these people that are living in Lincoln are feeling. And I felt like I learned because like it did take me doing that video and crying my eyes in front of the camera in my room by myself. It took me that to realise that deleting these things and not posting anything, not talking not taking in anything because i'm not just blocking myself from negative things i'm blocking myself from information as well you know and i can't spread information if i see something that i i can't learn it and i can't teach so like if i i can't find that now then help those people also that may not known that so then i changed that i did that documentary i i was it called i did that video and i've spoken on many times about that stuff. I went to the rallies here. We helped with those stuff and helped with many other events. And I um, spoke to the head of, um, oh, what's it called? The, the, uh, he's head of something to do with ethnic diversity in the student union. And he's talked to me about his plans for um, 
the uh, Black History Month next month and how I can help him with it. But it's just being proactive now, just doing something because momentum has stopped. And I feel like it is an issue because at the end of the day, I was literally in the gym the other day thinking, what has actually been done? Yeah. The only thing I can think about that's been done is them, the government saying that England isn't systematically racist. That's the only thing I can think of that's been done. So yeah. I, I, mean, I, I think that was going to be my next question was, so there was a lot of discourse at the time, obviously around what can white people do, I suppose, essentially, like how can white people be better allies to use a word? Not everyone's a fan of the concept of allyship, but I suppose we're using it for the purpose of this. I mean, what, what did you, what did you make of, of that? I mean, do you have any ideas about how white people can be better allies? Um, would you rather we focus more on like what the government does? Um, what are your views and thoughts around, around that stuff? It's, it's a tricky one, man, because I, I think at the end of the day, it's hard to change. If someone is a racist, it's hard to change that person's view to not be racist. But I, I, I do think that when 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 those marches were happening, a lot of people messaged me like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm going to try and uh, teach myself, I'm going to try and do this and do that, just to like gain knowledge and help myself so I cannot uh, do this, this and that. But I'm not entirely sure how you reach a point where there is some form of allyship when at the end of the day, the leaders of this country will always protect the people that look like them. Mm. And that's at the end of the day, that's what this the case is. Realistically, they wouldn't say that England is, is has any racism because that affects the majority, which is that's them protecting the people that look like them a majority, uh, yeah and that's the issue I, <laughs> i'm trying yeah, to think of difficult, difficult questions i mean do you feel hopeful about like your generation because you're like gen you must be gen z right um 20, 21 yeah, 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 yeah. um i mean are you hopeful about your your generation because uh, do you feel like there's there's more of an intergenerational aspect to this and that maybe with younger people, like there's a lot more vim to create a, an anti-racist world. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do think our generation is more motivated about it because I, I can see that. I can definitely see that in the black community, 100%. And in other communities, I do think it's increased because like, for example, my parents seem to like, not my parents, but my aunties and stuff, including my parents, to be fair. I remember them having a conversation around Christmas time, talking about it. And they just, they, all the others just came to this conversation like, oh, people always be racist, what can you do? Yeah. But it's like that you can't have that mentality because then nothing will get fixed. And I do believe that that is the case. And I do believe that things will eventually get better because, you know, growing up and going to go back to schools, in schools, a lot of the teachers were very just like, sorry sorry he called you a nigger sorry but like 
it's making me say sorry. And someone in this documentary told me about, in the documentary I made, she went to school here. She told me that she one time she like a guy called it the n-word in school and the teacher just said oh like i'm so sorry could make made him say sorry but he says sorry but he's still looking at her like she is that n-word but oh she's apologized now you have to move on i reckon with people in our generation there's going to be new teachers and stuff there will be a lot more a lot more resistance to things like that because hopefully because people in our generation have been they've been exposed to a lot more cultures even if you don't live in a very multicultural place you have the internet you can look up stuff you can educate yourself so much easier that you can gain knowledge on these things and hopefully that does lead to a change in curriculums and stuff I mean it's ridiculous like you don't get taught anything you really don't. You get told that Britain is great and <laughs> everyone else is not. And that's literally it. But I think it does start in the schools and because you learn so much there. And I believe with new teachers, as long as these teachers, people from my generation that are becoming teachers, are very screwed on with that fact. They can help kids realise what is good and what's wrong because that's where your beliefs stem from. Mm. You can... You can say something bad in school, your teacher will tell you off, you go back home, you hear your parents say it, you at least know it's wrong. Yeah. And like that, so that's where I think it stems from. And that's where I think it will change. And that leads me nicely onto my next question, um, which is, I guess, is thinking about like, on a sort of bigger level, um, if there are any types of kind of government policies that you think either being reformed or being abolished would help the black community. Um, so an example, an obvious example might be things like stop and search, which obviously many people in the black community um, think is very harmful um, to, to black men in, in particular. Um, and also I guess I wanted to just hinge on this just a little bit, because we haven't really talked about this, but this idea that like within the black community, being black and middle class is maybe a different experience to being black and working class. Um, and I'd also love to know your, your thoughts around that. Like, do you think there's there's a difference, a big difference in experience class-wise in terms of how, how you know, young black people experience life in this country as well? I, I think, I think, um, I think that you may experience different things depending on your class, but I do think you may still experience bad. I'll give you an example. Um, LeBron James. Yeah. He, when he played for the team I support, the Cavaliers, he had a house in LA. Uh, so he's living in Cleveland across from the other side of America to California. He has a house in LA. Um, his house got... Um, vandalized they uh they uh, graffitied uh, loads of racial slurs all across his house so i still feel like this there's there's a song um by a rap group i listen to called earth gang they they mention that and it's like no matter how and they say me paraphrasing no matter how much money you get you're still an n-word you yeah. know no matter how no matter how big you get you're still i think that's that a kanye west lyric. i think that's a kanye west lyric as well but i'm trying to remember which song 
I think Jay Z says it in um the story of OJ. It's, it's like oh yeah, there's different types of I'm not that black, I'm OJ. <laughs> yeah, in, in the story of OJ, he says that as well. So it's yeah. I do feel regardless of class, you're still gonna go through hardships. Make you may be able to still live more comfortably. Like you're not gonna go through these hardships, and LeBron goes through these hardships, it will still make him feel doubt. Regardless of how much money you can get, you're still going to feel some way if someone breaks into your house and graffitis it, you know? Just because you fall back into a king-size bed doesn't make it any less meaningful that you're going through that hardship. I guess just when you're in a higher class, you can just protect yourself a bit, I guess, Mm. you know? Uh, But I I think suffering is suffering. But in terms of government policy, um, the stop and search one is very is very key, and I think a lot of a lot of a big issue that I think we go through as um, as people. This might not. This isn't even. This isn't um, government based. Is to be fair, actually thinking about this one first. The whole idea of being followed by police in cars mm. for for the longest time for no apparent reason you know like you are driving fine and it, you're being followed waiting to make a mistake almost you know so they have an excuse to to stop you you get a new car <laughs> my dad once got stopped in his new car when on the way back to my on the way to my football game just for no no reason, they just pulled him over to check because he's driving a new car, you know? And it ended up being, they took the car because his insurance hadn't come up because it was a new car, brand new car. It was a day old. Back then it wasn't automatic because this is in like 08, you know? <laughs> so it hadn't come through yet. And I ended up being late to my game <laughs> because we had to walk the rest of the way. Oh and God. it was really, so, yeah, it's stuff like that that... um. You know, you, you don't just see a black man in a new car and decide to follow him because it's a black man in a new car. You don't see a black, and this is one I was going to go into, which I said wasn't very good. You don't see a black man into your store. And I've worked in retail. I feel like if you are in retail, you shouldn't have to, we get told if someone looks dodgy, you follow them. Yeah. I feel, and I used to hate it so much. Like, you know, you're being told to prejudice against people and just assume you're scared to steal, you so, know? So what management would tell you that, basically? Yeah. If you yeah, see someone, you have to, like, you have to just assume and just, just from afar, keep a lookout on them. And I literally hated it. I felt so uncomfortable kind of trying to judge people. Mm. One person did, but I I did catch them actually. But they were outside, and obviously for safety reasons, I can't go up to them and try and take stuff off them because I don't know if they could. Yeah, but I do feel like for something like that, you should only be able to follow someone around if you have general reason to think that they are stealing. Me and my friend were walking around a house of Fraser's. Mm. And we were being followed around. My friend turned around and started shouting at the, at the security guard. Is that like, okay? It's an expensive shop, but why can't we be buying something from here? Mm. 
and you knew he wasn't doing a lot because he started off at the door. We walk in, we're going up floors, and he's still with us. It's it's stuff it's stuff like that. We need to get rid of like the target on our back. We're not a, we're not a threat, and I don't exactly know how that can be eliminated. Mm. But people need to stop seeing black people as an instant threat. Yeah. No, because people are defensive when you see a threat. Everyone's defensive when you see a threat. If you know something's threatening, you're going to treat a threat like a threat. You're going to be defensive straight away. But I'm, if you ask my girlfriend, she'll tell you I'm kind and bubbly and I'm not a threat. (laughs) I'm the least threatening person you can probably meet. Yeah. Yeah, it's annoying. Yeah, it's just maybe it goes back to what you were talking about earlier with the whole education piece. And because there's just so much missing from people's understanding of blackness. Like there's that very just it's just a series of stereotypes, really. And there's no real empathy and understanding, because when you look at the the history, the violence that has been enacted (laughs) against black people is is massive, is of this kind of huge scale. Um, So it almost seems quite laughable, really, the way in which we are then posited as the threat or posited as it's like, a bad thing it's, it's sort of deeply ironic not funny but just sort of like huh do you know what i mean like oh that's ironic in um, dave's new album again he says this line and it's it's stuck with me and it comes back to that he says um he says um you see scarface and it's glorified you see blue story and you're horrified it's that complete, like, when it's a black person, it's a completely different. And it was the media. I remember when um, there was a stabbing somewhere and it was actually in Frozen 2's, uh, Frozen 2's cinema room. But because Blue Story was playing at the time, it was framed like the stabbing was happening because of Blue Story being played in the cinema. <laughs> it's that type of, and that, once again, it's a story about young black children in London, and that just kind of leads to the thing. Then move, then cinemas just stopped showing it. In certain, and it's that issue again. Yeah, it's it's fueled. Every fire yeah. needs a fuel. Yeah, I think maybe like education is 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 the key here, and and people having that knowledge and understanding that isn't just a one-dimensional stereotype of, of blackness but then I guess it's in everything as well it's in like films tv like all of those spaces like show a very one-dimensional view of yeah. especially black youth I think in in particular there, there's kind of that stage where like black men become you know, aren't quite kids anymore but they're still young and, and, and youthful as soon as they start to enter their teenage years suddenly it's like they're a threat suddenly the police are, have their eyes on you like there's I don't know if you've read um Akala's book um Natives um and he talks about the first time he was stopped and searched and he was 12. <laughs> National Stopping is stopping and searching a, tw- a 12 year old boy. Why are you stopping this? What threat do you Probably what, what is that? that? Why do you think what is that 12 year old? <laughs> so very sad um but as we come to a close, um, we would like to end on something a bit hopeful, despite the, the struggles and the challenges that are there. Um, so to end every podcast episode, I'm asking everyone, what brings you joy 
as a young black person. It can be a thing, it can be a person, it can be a series of stuff, it can be something trivial, it can be something massive. What brings you joy as a young black person? I, I think we as a community have something very special that I don't believe others necessarily have. There's a very big togetherness of the, the black community, you know, especially when we're at our like young ages, like we, it, I, I can, we can almost speak and meet each other for the first time and speak like, I've known you for 10 years, 20 years. <laughs> and that almost might be my favorite element of it, you know? I say hi to people I've never known and my, my, I'll be walking my girlfriend, I just say hi. So do you know him? No, I don't. <laughs> Is your girlfriend white? <laughs> in my life. She's, um, she's half Polish, she's um, quarter Russian and quarter, quarter Kazakhstan. Okay. She's not here, but she's um, foreign as well. But yeah, but she's like, even all my friends from Cheltenham, they'll be like, do you know? No, I don't. Do you not like, know? <laughs> white people always think that. They're always like, oh, why do you say hi to them? You just do, especially just when you do. Area, like children, I guess, yeah. as well. Because you must because, yeah. black people. Even if it's not a hi, at least just a nod or like a, you know? The nod. <laughs> I, I, I love that. that, that it's, and it comes from the community kind of emphasis, you know? It comes from that because community is always, we, we know nothing but community. And that's another thing. If, if I'm allowed two things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that, so the togetherness comes together with the community and it's just like, you know, you'll never be alone. Yeah. You know, if we ever need anything, you know, those people will be there for you. It was literally raining like crazy one day. And when I was filming what the final piece of my documentary, I asked, I asked these people um, to come to the uni building through the rain, you had to walk home. I walked to the silver building just because I wanted to film a five second clip of them telling me in one word, describe what it's like to be black in Lincoln. So I could do a montage at the end of the documentary. And I got people coming through the rain, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's that, that's what I love, you know? It's that element of it. Yeah. And I think that's what brings me joy. Oh, well, that's a beautiful thing to end on. I totally think community is is a fantastic element of, of being Black. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, we talked about so much stuff. Um, yeah. We could have kept talking and having this conversation because there's so many interesting things to talk about and pick apart. But thank you so much for your time, um, Luther. Um, thank you for being part of Naked Politics' podcast, Young, British and Black. Thank you for having me. It was a lovely, lovely talk. I appreciate you guys having me.